And welcome to the other side of midnight, where a lot of things go crazy at midnight. Like uh, our host, Richard Hoagland, his power went out just moments ago, and uh, we have no communication with him. His internet's down, and his phone is down. And I had nothing to play as a replay in place of this, because this was just last second. Uh, our guest tonight is going to be uh, Robert Morningstar and Stephen Bassett, but Stephen won't be coming in until the second hour or top of the second hour. And Robert and I are going to fill this gap um, with what we do know about what's going on. Uh, Congress has laid down or thrown down the gauntlet, and they're demanding or asking for all uh, contractors to bring forth any ET information. And uh, that looks like a positive win here, and things should go uh, uphill from here on. But we'll find out. I'm going to bring on Robert, because uh, uh, this is, a, like I said, a last-minute uh, show that was not supposed to be hosted by me. And my co-host normally is Kinthea, but uh, she seems to be um, in the wind. So, Robert, um, it's me and you. Hello. Yeah, hi. Yeah. Well, it's very interesting. Um Richard asked me to speak about a couple of things, so that's what I'm going to do. You mentioned the con Congress passing a resolution, actually ordering the aerospace industries to disclose, to divest. And in the course of the last week, uh, a short article came across my desk that said that Lockheed Corporation was trying to find a way of giving back or giving up a reverse engineered UFO that they have. But there's no more details other than that. Because, I don't know, I guess the fear of the Lord has come into the aerospace corporations and that the, this Congress is clawing back uh, powers that rightly belong to it. And they are using the power of the purse to put the, the fear of the Lord in all concerned, you know, not just aerospace companies having to divest and um, to divest, disclose, surrender, uh, reverse engineered craft and alien technology. It wasn't just UFO trap. The uh, other part of that resolution involves having to fess up on reverse engineered energy technology, zero point energy devices, um, I suppose particle beam weapons, uh, things like that. So this is and not just for I, the military to come forward and. Uh, oh no 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 no! This is specifically for the corporations. What we call the military-industrial complex: Lockheed, McDonnell Douglas, Boeing. They've been put on notice, and I suppose what the Congress is saying, you know, if you don't. If you don't fess up, if you don't give us what you're holding, you're not going to get it. I mean, why else would they have to comply? But that's the situation. I think it's a good situation. I think it shows a lot of courage on the part of the Congress moving in unison uh, to demand what's rightfully their purview, their authority, and what rightly belongs to the American people. In 2014... I spoke at the Secret Space Program Breakaway Civilization Conference in San Mateo, near San Francisco, California. And Catherine Austin Fitz disclosed that she, while working for the Clinton administration, uh, housing and urban development, she, she got a, you know, a spreadsheet of all the holdings and all the expenses of the HUD department. Mm -hmm. And she, she decided to start investigating because she saw a lot of expenditures that, you know, were really very high. And she did, it wasn't really clear what the money was being spent on. 
So she decided to fly around the country and visit these facilities that were listed as as um, Department of uh, not Homeland Security, uh, Urban Development, Housing and Urban Development. So she started flying around the country and going to these addresses, and she would go to places that said that they were a building or a facility, and she'd find a field. And then she kept tracking. She got on, you know, she became a detective investigating all of this. And ultimately, she figured out that her estimate, I think, now is $40 trillion. It just disappeared into a vacuum. So this this is part of what um, Rumsfeld was talking about in 2001, that there was $2.3 trillion missing from the military budget. Right, the day before 9-11, on September 10th, he announced that, oops, well, we don't know where it went, you know, $2.3 trillion, and we're investigating it. And then it just so happens that the area of the Pentagon that was hit the next day was uh, a naval office where the audit was being done. The the, the the point of impact, if you want to call it that, for whether it was the airliner or the missile or both, was uh, the result was to wipe out the office in the Pentagon where the audit was being conducted, where the records had been uh, collected. So good uh, to have a Barbara Honiger would speak very knowingly about that issue. But yes, $2.3 is part of... 40 trillion, according to Catherine Austin Fitz, that she was able to uh, track down and deduced that it had gone into the secret space program. I'd heard that there was also paperwork in the trade centers, or one of them, mm-hmm. that uh, also could have led a trail back to them uh, and where that money went to. But. Um, but well, let's not, let's not forget also, since the subject is UFO, that a UFO was seen uh, flying near the World Trade Center on 9-11. It was caught on uh, cameras from very long distances. The government and uh, corporations have never released close-ups of it. And then in October of 2011, there was uh, quite a significant sighting of a UFO passing by the World Trade Center, and it was footage taken from a helicopter. And the the UFO, you know, when, you, when you're studying it, you can see before people react to it, you can see it passing in the gap between the two towers. So a couple of seconds later, it emerges uh, openly on the right of the North Tower, and then suddenly it zips away, and somebody says, look, it's over there. And then as they turn the camera over there, uh, we've talked about this. It, it, it zooms in really almost on a collision course with uh, the helicopter and makes a U-turn and uh, leaves what I consider a trail of ionized air as it makes a U-turn at incredible speed and zap, zips off into high altitudes. Yeah, well, so, I, what I understand I, about that is I uh, I think that was a sci-fi channel um, promotion yeah, that they put that together. No, uh, I think they put, see, to leak something that's real on a sci-fi channel leaves you plausible deniability. And that's what I think was happening there. I analyzed that video and I think it's real. But the, And the fact that it came out on the sci-fi channel, I don't think uh, debunks it. I think it's uh, one of those perfect leaks that... They can say, oh, no, 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 if anybody goes, it was on the sci-fi channel. But I take it seriously. But the, the reason I, I don't accept it is because, uh, one, these things don't leave contrails. Two, they don't make curvature turns. They make 90-degree angle turns. And this thing left a contrail and made a wide curving turn to go away Well, from. you're assuming it's a contrail. You're assuming it's a contrail. It could also be an ionization trail. So let's leave that aside. It's just an incident, a, a sidebar. Okay. Uh, but the UFOs, uh, and I showed you my video, 
of UFO activity in uh, the skies across New York, and I have my ha- I've had my nine experiences at the monument, where with close, really close approaches of UFOs. So they're showing themselves, and as somebody very astutely said uh, uh, recently, and you know more than once, there's not going to be any disclosure until the aliens or the extraterrestrials say there can be a disclosure. And as far back as 2008, 2010, when I was involved in trying to get disclosure through the United Nations with a a working group, U.S. Navy-sponsored working group, wanted to get the disclosure discussion happening in the United Nations to do an end around against the bloc in the deep state, the United States government, deep state, CIA, U.S. Air Force, U.S. Army, one faction, and the U.S. Navy always trying to get the the facts out to the public. So the United States Navy, simply because of the rotation, the sequence of rotation in the heads of the chairman of the department, uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, director of national intelligence, and commander-in-chief of Central Command, all of a sudden the rotation, just by natural order, resulted in three Navy men holding those positions. Uh, Mike McMullen became director of Central Intel, uh, of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Mike McConnell became director of National Intelligence. And um, I forgot uh, the admiral who was in charge, the admiral who was in charge of Central Command. And uh, so they... They put us to work. I was approached by the Department of the Navy for my writings in the UFO Digest. So they said that they'd read it and they, they thought I was a serious person and that I could be trusted. And they wanted me to be uh, the uh, second source to get the information out to the public to write reports, leaking basically what was going on behind the scenes at the United Nations, which included meetings, religious organizations were brought in. The, uh, they established an ambassador for outer space affairs. And it was really interesting. I got to meet her. She was awarded the Leonov Medal um, during that second year, it was 2009, 2010, something some uh, overlapped a couple, quite a few months. And I met the chairman of the United Nations Committee for the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, a very, very, very nice man. We really hit it off, Mr. Propriatu, Romanian, Romanian astronaut, who told me about his journeys into outer space and how he still dreamed about outer space. And I asked a question at the press conference. Uh, since I'd met him before the press conference and we had a good, you know, rapport, I asked the question, uh, you know, what do you, does the United Nations have plans uh, for a possible contact with extraterrestrial races? And he, he smiled when I gave him the question. He was part of like six or seven people, including Neil deGrasse Tyson was there. Um, and somebody from the State Department was there. And he smiled and he said, he started this, he said this, he said, well, the United Nations has many plans ready for the prospect of encountering life in outer space, both microbial life and intelligent life. And at that moment, I saw these shoulders go up on the right side of the panel and they went up and they went down and then she said, Excuse me, excuse me. I want to make something perfectly clear here. And it was the ambassador for outer space affairs, whom I also had met before the conference and had a good rapport with. Her name was Maslan Othman. And she said, I want to make it clear. Nothing on the subject of UFOs is going to come to the floor of the General Assembly unless we get prior approval from three organizations. The, Nash, the International Association of Aeronautics, the International Association of Astronautics, and the International Association of Science. If these three bodies of science do not 
agree nothing is going to come to debate on the floor of the United Nations. And there you had it. The scientific uh, wall was blocking debate regarding UFOs at the United Nations. Now, it's interesting that I, I was very I was very involved in, in this thing. Uh, I met uh, the Navy officer who was in charge of it. They had a briefing, according to him, they had a briefing in the United Nations, a secret one, and an ET representative was there to discuss with them uh, the agreements that they had with the United States government and the United Nations and how disclosure was to be brought about. They also told me that the aliens, let's call them that for now, shorter word than extraterrestrials, the aliens demanded, were demanding at that time, a disclosure of their presence here to the world public because they were tired of uh, hiding in the background. They also said that it was necessary for them to intervene openly in world affairs because the world was uh, on the on way to uh, self-destruction ecologically and that they had technologies that could help repair the ecological conditions. And this involved pollution of the oceans and um, earthquake activity and things like that. So what year was that? That was during 2009, 2010. Okay. And so it, there was a, there was a crescendo, you know, of events that was happening in in 2007. It's going back from memory. 2007, a really significant UFO event happened at O'Hare Airport in Chicago. I remember that. Uh, yeah, hundreds of people saw on a totally overcast day. Hundreds of people on the road on the highway saw a UFO hovering over one of the terminals. A major terminals of O'Hare Airport. Ground crew saw it, pilots saw it, pilots called up the tower, referred to it, ground crew called up the tower, referred to it, tower didn't know what it was. As people were observing it, this rather large UFO just zipped straight up boom, and, plug, and blew a hole in the clouds. I said total cloud cover. So the UFO went vertically straight up at incredible speed and left a hole in the clouds. A cylindrical allowed, hole, as a matter yeah, of fact. Yeah, allowed the sunshine. Imagine a totally dark day. It was late. It was, I think it was around November. If my, it was not summertime. So a cold, late fall or winter day. And it just blasted through the cloud cover and left a column of light coming down through the hole that it had plugged, uh, you know, plunge, uh, poked through. So that was 2007. In 2008, I went down to Washington for Leslie Keene's uh, press conference at the National Press Club, where she had uh, pilots and the government officials who came out and talked openly uh, and calling for disclosure. And there is when I got to meet the... Uh, General De Breuer, who was the uh, commander of the Belgian Air Force at the time that the Black Triangle was making its rounds over there in 1989 and was being was flying low and slow and stopped and scores of photographs were taken. The, the Belgian Black Triangle mm -hmm. and uh, F-16s were sent after it. I did a lot of work on some of the photographs which were very dark and I was able to bring through computer enhancement I was bringing out details like a red light there wasn't just it wasn't just a black triangle that was zipping around it there was a red UFO that it deployed and it was acting as its I would say its wingman so when people saw the first black triangle I think it was the one that's called the uh, the photo from Petty Richard and uh, you saw a black triangle with a red light behind it, and you thought that the red light was part of the black triangle, but when I enhanced it, it was a separate entity. And then there were other reports that it had come over Belgian towns and released the red UFO, and it had come down into the town and flown around and gone back up. At the same conference, I met pilots 
who had gone out after the UFOs. I met General Parvez Jafari, who was the uh, chief of staff of the Iranian Air Force, and he was the F-4 pilot back in 1979, September 16th of 1979. He had been uh, scrambled. He'd been scrambled to intercept a UFO that was seen near the airport in Tehran. So he was vectored to this air, uh, this anomaly, this U-ape, right? So there was a U-ape floating around in the uh, area of Tehran in the north, northeastern region near the Airbus Mountains. And so they were scrambled two jets, uh, F Phantoms, F, uh, F-4s. I remember and, a time when I, I was going up to Manchester in New Hampshire for a presidential election. And I was supposed to be at stationed at one of the uh, one of our affiliates up there, and we're at like thirty thousand feet, and there was clouds all the way to the horizon, thick clouds. You couldn't see the ground or anything. And I'm just looking out the window, and this was shortly after um, this was shortly after nine eleven that took place. It was maybe a few months or whatever, and. I'm looking at the clouds, and next thing I know, I see this dark disk hovering just above the clouds, at least 10,000 feet below us. And this thing was huge, and it was so big, I think we could have flown down and landed on it. It was that big, but it wasn't moving. We were flying over top of it, so it was just sitting there. And I know the pilot and the co-pilot had to see this thing. Right? I mean, it was unmistakable and we flew over and I watched it go out underneath the wing of the plane and for a minute I wanted to say you know UFO out the side of the plane but I, I remember you know we, we had just come out of 9-11 and I wasn't gonna make people maybe, strap me maybe, down you know? yeah, maybe you remember the Twilight Zone with William Shatner yeah <laughs> the Kremlin was out on the wing messing with the engine but were you flying near Maine because you said, where yeah, were you we from? We headed for Manchester. Um, Manchester, New Hampshire. Yeah. Well, you know, that's not far from Maine. And uh, for people who are interested, uh, you can go to my Substack, the Morningstar Report newsletter, robertmorningstar.substack.com, and look, backtrack on an article that I wrote, uh, UFOs over the great state of Maine, the, the great state of Maine, and New Hampshire are hotbeds of UFO activity. So I chronicled uh, uh, several uh, cases, including abduction cases that occurred in Maine in the 1950s. There's a very, let me go back to the, the F-4 incident because this is a very important. The pilot of the F-4, uh, General Parvez Jafari, gave a talk while I was in England that the previous summer, I bought a series of UFO books that are not available in the United States. There's, there's actually the series is called X-Files series. And I, I bought one at the airport, bought two at the airport. And I was reading specifically about an incident that involved a British doctor who was working in Iran and had a close Iranian friend. So the Iranian friend invited him to make a pilgrimage up to a holy mountain where one of their prophets is buried. And in order to um, support pilgrimages into that region, the Iranian government has built um, bungalows or shacks or um, small cabins, I would say, cabins with bunk beds so that the pilgrims can go up there and sleep and stay on the mountain and do their, their prayers and their pay reverence to the, the prophet. So this doctor and this Iranian uh, friend of his go up, they park their car up on the mountain and they go into the cabin. And in the middle of the night, they were awakened by sounds of uh, stones and you know crunching footsteps. And then all of a sudden, the door opened, and in walked six men. They were dressed in black from head to toe. They had hoods on. They had a cover. The, the hoods covered their mouths and their noses. 
but they had big black eyes. And he said that without a word, without a single word between them, these uh, fellows, these beings, looked at them, and it was clear, just start walking, we're going someplace. And they, they walked out and in pitch black night, and they heard stones and sticks breaking under their feet as they scuffled and shuffled up, uh, being led by these uh, men in black, Iranian version, men in black with big black eyes. And they kept walking in the darknesses, and all of a sudden, they said that they felt like a, a thick rug, like a Persian carpet under their feet, all of the sticks and stones. They just walked through the darkness and the the terrain changed under their feet. Then they were led into this room that had a huge window. All of a sudden, they could see the landscape through that window, and then it lifted off. And they claimed to have seen Yugoslavia. They could see sheep and shepherds on the hills of Yugoslavia as they flew by, and then Italy. And then they saw Paris, and they were shown London, and then they were returned back to Iran. But when they woke up, they were lying on the road at the base of the mountain, and they looked at their car, and their car was 75 feet or so away from them, but they hadn't parked it there. They had parked it up on top of the mountain. And so then they got in the car and started driving in. Now, they thought that this was one night. They thought that they went into the cabin, they went to sleep, they got awakened, they got taken, they got given a tour and were put back the same night on the road. So they start driving into Tehran and they turn on the radio and then they heard the report coming over the radio of the F4 incident and the intercept. And they realized that it wasn't the next morning, it was actually two days later. So they had a whole uh, probably 36 hours of missing time hmm. and they couldn't explain it to each other and it specifically said that this happened in a region called the Airbus Mountains so after the conference uh, where General per, uh, Pervez Jafari had given his account of chasing it now in the chase he was vectored in to the UFO he could see it brilliantly uh, radiating multiple colors uh, in the skies and stationary. And as he approached it, he turned on his uh, radar, he got a missile lock on it. And at the moment that he got the missile lock on it, he said his his cabin, his cockpit, seemed like he was so hot, it seemed like he was on fire and nothing worked. All the electronic equipment failed, navigation equipment, the engine, the jet engine kept, kept uh, blowing and propelling him. But he had no radio communications, and he had no uh, navigation equipment. And so as he was heading toward it, after having locked missiles on this uh, UFO, he saw a white UFO emerge from the big, resplendently brilliant rainbow colored, I would say. He said they had multicolors. Every color in the rainbow was radiating from this thing. He saw a white light streaking toward him, and he thought he was going to be destroyed he thought it was a missile that had been shot at him okay so Robert. He, we're, so he we're turned. coming up okay, on the bottom of the back. hour okay uh we're gonna pick up back pick up pick back up where we left off here all right this is interesting stuff all right uh you're listening to the other side of midnight because richard lost power uh robert morningstar and myself keith morgan we're hosting the show because it was at the last second that he lost power. We'll be back in just a moment.
theothersideofmidnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. back to the other side of midnight uh right now it's just robert morningstar and myself and richard lost power if his power comes back and he regains his internet he should be able to come online with us um hopefully before steven gets here in the next 28 minutes but uh tonight we're talking about ufos obviously we're also talking about what Congress is doing to shake the trees to get the uh, information out of the people who know. And that's the government contractors who have been making a bundle off all of this stuff and keeping it quiet. So, Robert, uh, you want to yeah. pick up where you left off? Yeah, sure. Yeah, we're, we're in Iran. We're over, uh, over Tehran, Iran, northeastern Iran there, uh, near the Airbus Mountains. And... General Jafari has locked on his radar to a UFO, uh, intending to shoot missiles at it. When his UF, when his cockpit feels like it goes on fire, all of his electrical equipment fail, his radio fail. He saw a white light emerge from the UFO coming directly at him, and he thought that he was going to be shot out of the sky. So he veered, he turned his plane away from the UFO, and then he saw the white light returned to the UFO, made a U-turn, and uh, didn't leave a concentration con condensation trail, but it returned back to the UFO and merged with it. And this was at 25,000 feet. So then he saw the UFO descend very rapidly to the desert floor. So he brought his plane down to between 15,000 feet and 12,000 feet, and he circled the UFO on the, on the ground in the desert. And he said that he could see the light from the UFO uh, illuminating the desert floor with his multicolored, uh, multicolored lights. So he turned around, went back to base, and reported in. Uh, he had the, he was scared out of his wits because he thought he was going to die. So then, at the end of the lecture. I walked over to him and started talking to him. And I mentioned the previous account that I told you about the Iranian, uh, the British doctor and the Iranian citizen who had been abducted over that two-day period when his encounter with the UFO occurred. And I said to him, and it happened in this mountain, in this region called the Airbus Mountains. And when I said Airbus Mountains, he lit up, he straightened up, and his eyes... Oops, sorry. Right? And then he said, you know, I didn't say this during the lecture, but the next morning I went to the airport and I commandeered a helicopter, and I flew to the place, to the landing site, where I saw the UFO land, and he said, and it was there where you say the Airbus Mountains. So that was, that was a hit. Uh, it was a very, very... A gratifying uh, experience uh, to bring two pieces of information together and have have um, corroboration. I was corroborating for him and he for me that these two events, if you read about them independently, you don't know they're connected, but 
uh, he actually said it was there. He may have gone to the UFO that actually abducted those those two pilgrims, let's call them. Okay, so I'm, I'm laying out a chronicle of the disclosure uh, sequence over, over these years. Okay, so there we are at um, Washington with Leslie Keene at the press conference. I also met a, a pilot from Ecuador who was scrambled in an SU-27, Sokoy-27. The Army base uh, had been having its uh, morning uh, roll call, and they saw a UFO hanging out, just, you know, holding station, as, as we say in navigation. You just hold your position, and uh, about oh, a mile or two away from the, from the fort. So they called the Air Force, and they scrambled a, a Sokoy-27 which is a pretty high-flying uh, Russian interceptor. And they vectored in on, on the UFO. The UFO took off and started climbing, and the Ecuadorian pilot chased it. And as he chased it, he opened up on it, and he fired both uh, heavy-duty uh, machine gun fire and rockets. And he said that he was hitting it, but something was deflecting. They weren't hitting the, the craft itself. They were hitting some kind of force field, and he chased it up, he said, to up to 50,000 feet. And he was so intent on the chase that he forgot about his fuel because he was on afterburners trying to catch up with this thing. Then he saw that his fuel was really low, so he had to turn around. And then he turned around, and then the UFO turned around and was on his tail. And he said it was the scariest time of his life because he thought the UFO was going to do to him what he had done to the UFO, which was fire upon it. And so since I speak Spanish, we had also there, we had a great rapport, got photographs taken together. And um, the interesting thing is all of this is leading toward that it, that time, the, um, the following year, the the attempted disclosure to the United Nations. Another thing that happened that year, 2008, was the Stephenville UFO sighting, where qualified pilots, townspeople, scores of people saw it, and a giant UFO was seen over Stephenville, uh, hovering in the sky and actually assuming strange attitudes. And what I mean by strange attitudes is seeing a horizontal UFO brilliantly lit, illuminated UFO tilting 90 degrees and standing on an edge. And um, the witness said that all of a sudden it just took off, heading directly, coincidentally, toward Crawford, Texas, which is where George W. Bush, then President George W. Bush, had his Texas White House. And the pilot witness who saw it said that it took off easily going at 3,000 miles an hour. And shortly thereafter, he saw 10 F-16s heading in the same direction. So that was a big deal because that was the first time that the mass media, especially CNN, covered a UFO event seriously. Larry King live had uh, the witnesses. Angelia, Angela Joyner, a very sweet lady. I, I worked with her. She broke the story. I published it in UFO Digest. I spoke to her on the phone several times at length uh, regarding other subsequent articles and reports that she was making. And that broke the ice in the mass media. And I remember with great satisfaction, really, watching Larry King live, where he had the eyewitness, the pilot eyewitness, and talking to him. And he also had Michael Shermer, you know, the, uh, the skeptic. Mm -hmm. And uh, he, Larry was interviewing uh, the pilot witness. And in the middle of it, Michael Shermer made a comment, you know, to try to, you know, ridicule. And Larry King, Larry King said, shut up, Michael. <laughs> Just like that, shut up, Michael. And I knew it was ended. I knew that that was the moment that that the ridicule had come to an end and that they were finally going to treat something seriously. So then we move on to uh, the UN period when I was working with two friends here in New York who had been contacted by the Navy. The three of us 
started to work on writing the articles. They would give me the information from the Navy source. Then I would write up the article. So we did that, several articles, including that the religious meeting was very important, that they brought in um, religious leaders for another secret meeting. Now, here's the really important part. I finally got to meet the Navy officer. He took me out to dinner and he told me, that's when he told me, the Pentagon respects your work. They know you're serious, you're not, not a kook, you know, you're, you're not a uh, you know, tinfoil hat and they mm. respect your work, so we're gonna work together. And then he had a meeting organized, he organized the meeting and they had a briefing from one of the ETs. So I asked him to describe that ET to me and how it went. He said to me that it was a female. She was tall. She was totally white. She was dressed in white and totally professional, almost like a corporate person and unusual looking. And that he felt that she was putting on a spell is the best way I can tell you. Like the, the she was uh, shape-shifting of some sort because she talked for about an hour. But he said that after a half an hour to 45 minutes, the, the effect of seeing her as a kind of tall, white, corporate, corporately dressed um, woman that the effect started to wear out. And by the end of the lecture, she didn't look that human anymore. And I said, well, what does she look like? He says, you know, it's really hard to describe. I said, well, well what do you mean? He says, you know, all the features, the features kind of changed and they kind of got sort of amorphous. I said, well, what does that mean? He says, I, I don't know. She just kind of started to look like the Pillsbury Doughboy. <laughs> <laughs> I swear, I swear to God, this, these are the exact words that this captain in the United States Navy said to me. Well, you know, it was really weird. I just, just felt like this this uh, technology that they had been using to keep her looking, you know, quasi-human, mm -hmm. although totally white, uh, it started to wear off. Its effect on us started to wear off, and we started to see her change shape, and that was it. She looked, you know, kind of like the Pillsbury Doughboy. So anyway, as that was happening, people don't know that within the UFO community, there is a hardcore group of activists who don't want disclosure because they've carved out their little piece there. It's very parochial. So they've carved out their little piece of expertise on UFOs and they've got their their income stream and they publish their books and it's their version of the Roswell crash. That's the only version that's true, et cetera, et cetera. So a, a counter disclosure group developed in the UFO community and two lame brains went out of their way to try to discredit everything that we were doing in our effort to uh, arrive at disclosure through the United Nations. And they went to great lands and finally outed the, um, the Navy officer gave out his identity, uh, you know, found pictures of him at a, uh, at a masquerade party, a Halloween party, uh, dressed in a risque costume with his girlfriend, uh, you know, hmm. you know, it was a, a joke, but they put that out and everything just, uh, the whole, they crashed the whole thing. But what happened was, I was told, okay, he's not, <laughs> he blew his cover, he's not going to be involved anymore, but we're still going on with it. So we used to call him Source A, I used to call him Squid, that was my code name for him. And then they brought in another officer who was Source B, and they kept trying and kept trying. But the forces of anti-disclosure, meaning the deep state, the CIA, the Air Force, and the Army, I lumped them all together against the U.S. Navy, which is always trying to be the, the vanguard of disclosure. So that blew over. But the important thing that I have to emphasize is that that disclosure was happening because the aliens were demanding it. 
They said, you have to tell our people, your people, you have to tell your people that we're here. And if you don't, we're going to start appearing openly in skies and over capitals of other cities or uh, capital cities around the world and show the world what deceivers you are. And you have to do it by 2014. Well, 2014 came and went and attempts were made. And of course, 2014 is when Obama was in the White House. Mm -hmm. And I remember seeing Obama on a, a late night show and he was asked, he was asked about UFOs and he, he, had a, he had a panic attack. He practically had a panic attack evading the question. Yeah, I remember him saying, I, I can't talk about that. <laughs> yeah, I can't talk about that because, you know, I might wind up like JFK. And you know what? Of course, we know now that JFK was killed because of uh, his intense interest and his, his intention. He shared UFO. He shared UFO information with Nikita Khrushchev. He agreed with Nikita Khrushchev to work together uh, for peaceful uses of outer space and to go to the moon together uh, in a joint venture. And for that reason, the CIA had a kangaroo court-martial and they declared the death penalty on him. For those of you who don't know, I do have my radio shows on Revolution Radio on Sundays at 3 and on Mondays at 10. And this Monday at 10 o'clock Eastern on Studio B, Revolution Radio, I'm going to conduct my fourth interview with the man who killed President Kennedy, or one of the men who killed President Kennedy, the one who delivered the fatal shot to the head from the grassy knoll. His name is James Files. He confessed live on my show on Easter Sunday. We got the information to Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And he's been telling the whole world. So again, I would like to direct you to uh, the Morningstar newsletter on Substack, robertmorningstar.substack.com. I just updated an article that I wrote originally for UFO Digest and first published here on the other side of midnight. I it's was watching something on Redacted today, uh, yes. uh, Robert uh, Kennedy Jr. was right. talking about this, his father's assassination and how massive that cover-up was, how they uh, none of the shots that hit him came from the direction of where um, Sirhan Sirhan was standing. Right. And he was shot from behind by the guard who was leading him in the direction of through the kitchen or wherever they were going when they weren't supposed to be going that way. Right. And uh, it was a complete setup. Yeah, he was led to the slaughter. You know, it, I wrote that in 2018. I'm the one who put it all together, and I'm very proud of it. Robert Kennedy was very dear to me. I met him in real life, and uh, he was my senator at... Uh, the time when he was in the U.S. Senate. Mm -hmm. And I put it together with a friend named Roy Schaefer. And one of the key elements of it is something that was hidden for 50 years. Robert Kennedy fought for his life. When he sensed the guard grab his arm and not want to let him go and draw the gun, Robert Kennedy turned and he took the, the, the killer by the throat. And he wrestled that killer to the ground as he was pumping four shots into him, including the shot in the back of the head and uh, three shots uh, to the body. And he grappled with him, fell to the ground with him, and he ripped a, a tie off his, a clip-on tie off his neck. Mm -hmm. And he, Kennedy clutched that tie to his chest, to his heart, as he lay dying and waited for him to be attended by a, a Filipino nurse, a male nurse came to his aid, all the reporters surrounded him. And then Robert Kennedy took the tie and he laid it out on the ground so that everybody could see it. But Time Magazine and every newspaper in this country covered up that tie. And for the next 45, 50 years, whenever you saw a picture of Robert Kennedy on the ground dying, it was cropped right at the collar. They never showed you his fist holding on to the tie. But I learned about that in 1995 from my friend Roy Schaefer. So I always had my eye out for it. And it just ha so happened that at that year, uh, 2018, the 50th anniversary of it, I found the picture. 
and we published it here on the other side of midnight and you were part of that and if you go back to that it was june 6 2018 when we commemorated it the pictures are all there so i revived that article the last acts of robert f kennedy and i sent it again to robert f kennedy jr and i was so happy i almost, i was almost brought to tears but yesterday. do we we know the reason why they assassinated him oh yes same reasons he didn't want to continue the war in vietnam if he became president of the united states he was going to expose and go after the killers of his brothers and he and john f kennedy together were involved in ufo investigations and ufo research and they were intent on disclosing the ufo issue but more importantly the takeover of the ufo the takeover of the United States government by what Dr. Greer calls the ILG, the illegitimate uh, ISG, illegitimate secret government of the United States. And that's why the Congress is going out after them. Congress is, as I said, clawing back its rightful authority after the national security state arrogated to itself powers that were not granted to them and are unconstitutional and they have been running an unconstitutional government since the assassination of John F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King, Robert Kennedy and a long line of others. But with the disclosure, the peekaboo disclosure as I call it, you know, the tic-tac disclosure that President Trump conducted successfully December 16, 2017, they can't shut that door down anymore. So the U.S. Navy ultimately did succeed. We failed in 20, 2008 to 2010, but in 2017 we succeeded. And you can't close that door. The Tic Tacs are real, the videos are out, the pilots have testified. And now it's really going gangbusters. So we come to the resolution passed by Congress uh, demanding that all the aerospace companies fess up and surrender the technology that the United States, the people of the United States have paid for. Yeah. All that belongs to the people, we the people. And finally, we have a Congress with balls enough to challenge the deep state and expose all of it. So the CIA is on the ropes and Robert Kennedy is punching hard. So if I, let me finish. Yesterday, as I said, I was almost brought to tears because I saw his interview with Bill Maher. And as he, start, he started talking about the assassination of his father, he was reciting my article. He recited the article word for word. The autopsy, the tie, the clutching of the throat. The one thing he didn't mention was that on that day, June 6, 2018, the first issue of the Washington Post online had a remarkable photograph. It showed Robert Kennedy on the ground dying. It showed him being attended by the Filipino nurse. It showed the legs of six reporters that were standing around him watching him die. And it showed between the legs of a reporter a cop's hat with a hand reaching for it. They say that the, the uh, criminal always returns to the crime. I said Robert Kennedy fought for his life like a lion. He wrestled the killer to the ground. He ripped the tie off his head, off his neck, and the hat fell off. And then mm -hmm. he split. But when the hat was there on the floor, he had to come back for it. And some photographer shot a picture, and you see the hand reaching for the cop hat. Well, you know what? I tried to download that picture. It was blocked from downloading. So I grabbed my camera and shot it right off the screen. When I told all my other friends to go to the Washington Post and see it, it had been scrubbed. Within six hours, it was no longer there. But fortunately, I had shot it off the screen. And so mm -hmm. this is history. And Robert Kennedy recited my article word for word. So I've updated the article on Substack, robertmorningstar.substack.com. And you can see the last acts of Robert F. Ken the last acts of Robert F. Kennedy. And after you read the article, I put his interview with Bill Maher 
at the bottom so you can hear him recite everything you've read above. So I'm very satisfied with that. I'm very proud of the work I've done to uh, shed light on the worst things that ever happened to our country. The coup d'etats, multiple. Started with JFK and it's just maintaining it. The deep state has got to go. The deep yeah. state the deep state is a greater danger to the United States than the aliens. That's what I say. This is uh, th this whole thing has been s such a fiasco with these guys running in the background doing all of these things, and outside the Constitution, outside the checks and balances of our government, and they think they can get away with it because they think nobody's looking. But now the spotlight's been shined in their direction, and uh, they're fleeing like cockroaches. Yes. And hopefully they're going to get their comeuppance because yeah. you can't sit and, and think you can pull the wool over the people's eyes forever and keep mm -hmm. the same stuff going on. Um, and, and now that the non-disclosure... Uh, um, contracts that uh, the military people signed are now null and void, Right, they can come forward and tell their stories. And right. these stories sound so fantastic, some people aren't going to accept it, but it's the truth. They're telling you the truth. Yep. Well, speaking of cockroaches, 51 of the worst cockroaches are the ones that testified or uh, signed the letter saying that the Hunter Biden laptop was Russian disinformation. And they're being called on the carpet too because this Congress is bringing them in to testify why they testified a lie to influence the 2020 election. And all of them are gonna lose their security clearances, which is big bucks. They leave, they leave the quote unquote intelligence community, such a warm and fuzzy term. And then they start to rake in a lot of money from MSNBC and CNN as talking heads because they've got security clearances. Well, the Congress is stripping them of it. There were four CIA directors in that group of 51. And, of course, you've got the other uh, 47 talking heads who were spooks in various uh, degrees and categories of management. And they're all being called on the carpet and they're going to lose their security clearances because the CIA has been interfering. The CIA and the FBI have been interfering in presidential elections since the assassination of John F. Kennedy. So on Monday night at 10 o'clock on Studio B at Revolution Radio, you're going to hear the whole story, including I will be reciting, reading the CIA documents that were maintained about all the meetings that were held, all the people who were attending, Robert Trumbull Crowley, CIA Director of Clandestine Services or Clandestine Operations, kept very, very detailed notes. And on his deathbed in 1999, he gave these notes to another CIA agent named Gordon Ferry. Gordon Ferry gave notes to Okay, Robert, let's hold hold that thought because okay. uh, we're coming up on the top of the hour and I okay. want to make sure we get out on time. Right. Um, I heard from Stephen. He's on the road and he's not in uh, California right now. So, But um, hopefully he'll, he'll be able to get past whatever he's working on and uh, get to us and then we okay. can uh, interview him. All right. You're listening to The Other Side of Midnight. I'm your host tonight because Richard lost power at the last second. <clears throat> and we're talking with Stephen Bassett. And we're well, going to be talking with Stephen Bassett. We're talking with Robert Morningstar right now. And we should be back in a minute. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. 
To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out.